Well, good morning, everyone. It's nice to see you and to uh, to be with you. Um, history was a subject when I was at school that I quite enjoyed. Uh, I liked the thought of uh, learning about things from the past, looking into what had happened, who was involved, how it had uh, gone on, and um, and seeing whether we could learn from the past and all those sorts of things. But history is a strange discipline. I don't know whether you've ever thought about that. It's always incomplete. When you look at historical things, you can never know everything. There's always a mixture of objective facts and subjective opinion. To some extent, there's always bias as you read or watch something historical. It won't have all the crucial conversations. It won't know all the hidden motivations or the secret meetings. We can know some things, but not all when it comes to history. Uh, there's an old saying that history is written by the winners. In other words, if you win, you get to shape the narrative of what's been done and how it's recorded and how others will think of it. I don't think that's true, uh, history is written by the winners, because the further you get from an historical event, the more non-winners get to chip in with their own framing and narrative of what's gone on. But even though that saying I don't think is true, history is written by winners, it is true that history is written by sinners. That's why we can never count on history completely. It's why you can never put all your eggs in the basket when you're doing historical study. That's the beauty of a passage like ours today. We're looking today at one of the most significant events in world history. It may not have come across that way to you this morning as you heard Linda read the, the verses, but I'm telling you it is. And it's not only recorded by one of the best human historians, Luke, who was an apostle, and he talks about how he, how he did his, his uh, history, but the Holy Spirit is the one who works in and through Luke to make sure that the account we've got in front of us, the account we just heard, and I want you to look at this morning, contains everything we need. We will read about internal things going on in the characters. We will see the words that were said, the events that happened. We've got everything that we need in this historical event. And I mean it when I say that this is one of the, the top few most important events in the history of our planet. Because this is the moment when the news of Jesus started to change the lives of non-Jews, of Gentiles. Up until this point, it's still God dealing with the, the physical descendants of Abraham. But this is where it changes. Peter, the well-known apostle of Jesus, goes to this man called Cornelius and tells him and his household and some of his mates about Jesus. They believe in Jesus and the Holy Spirit comes upon all of them. This is a, a very significant event. It's also significant in the book of Acts. Because as I've been saying over these few weeks in the series, the book of Acts is about how the good news of Jesus spreads out. And we saw at the beginning of the book that it started in Jerusalem, where Jews heard Peter preach about Jesus, then, the Holy Spirit, then they responded in faith, then the Holy Spirit came down on them. Then it moved. It moved wider than just Jews in Jerusalem. It went out to the outlying areas of Judea and Samaria, where the Samaritans, who are half-Jews, they heard the gospel of Jesus. They believed in their hearts, and the Spirit came down on them. Well, now it's the next stage. It's the last stage. This is the good news of Jesus going to the ends of the earth, because Gentiles, non-Jews, are now hearing, believing, following, loving, trusting Jesus. This is the moment that Jesus impacts not just Israel, but the planet. This is the moment where it's seen that Jesus is not just the saviour of one nation, he's the saviour of the world. 
This is the moment where we see that Jesus is king, not just over one physical family, but of all people, regardless of birth or race. This is where it happens. It's straight after this that Paul, the apostle, will take center stage in the book of Acts. And what he will do is go around traveling and telling everyone about Jesus, and we will see Jews and Gentiles turning to Jesus. And that will change the world. That will make the world, the world that you and I live in now, where even on the other side of the world, we're meeting today as Christians. So this is a key, crucial event. So let's have a look at the reading. But it is really long, isn't it? That's right, Linda. It was very long. And in fact, it's longer still. We stopped it. That was where, where some of the confusion was. The reading carries on in chapter 11, verses 1 to 18. But, um, uh, uh, but really what's happening in, in chapter 1, verse 18, is a recounting of what we've already heard. I'll explain it when we, when we get to it. So because it's long, we'll move through it. We'll have to move through it a little bit quicker than we uh, would normally. But I want you to pick up what's going on here. Because everything that Luke's put in is important. Verse 1, we're introduced to a man called Cornelius. And both by his name and by his occupation, a Roman centurion, we know he's a Gentile. This is a non-Jew. But he's not just a Gentile. Verse 2 tells us that this man and his family were devout and they were God-fearing. It says that he gave generously to those in need and prayed regularly to God. Uh, later on, when he sends three men to go and find Peter, in verse 22, when the, when, when the men speak to Peter about Cornelius, they also add that Cornelius is a righteous man and he's respected by all the Jewish people. So, let's go back to verse 1 or 2, uh, Alex. This is a high-caliber person, Cornelius. He's a sincere person. He's a religious person. Well, this good man, we're told, has a vision. He sees an angel of the Lord, and the angel says to him in verse 5, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who's Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner. Now before we move on, some people worry here that because it says your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up, maybe, maybe what's being said here is that Cornelius has been such a good man, that's why God's doing something there. That would go against the whole teaching of the rest of the New Testament. It would go against what we're going to see in this chapter. What I think that's referring is it's just describing this is someone who's seeking the Lord. And the New Testament tells us, seek and you will find. If you seek the Lord... He will make himself known to you. That's what we're seeing here. But it's not because he's a good person or doing wonderful things. But Cornelius here follows the instructions of the angel. He sends men to Joppa. Then the scene changes. And suddenly we're over in Joppa. And we're with Peter, the wonderful disciple that we all love. Because he's, um, he's the everyman. Peter's gone up to his roof to pray. I'm not sure why that's the position you pray, but he is. And while, But he's hungry. I relate to Peter. Peter's hungry. And while he's waiting for his meal to be prepared, he dreams about food. We've all done that. Mmm, bacon. Or you know, something like that. That's what he does. And, in, and he has this dream. And in the dream, he sees he, the heavens opened and a huge sheet coming down. And on it, we're told, are all kinds of food. Four-footed animals. Mmm, four-footed animals. Reptiles. Not sure what to make of reptiles. Birds of the air. I hope birds also that stay on the ground, because some of them are nice. But there's all this food. And then the voice from heaven says, in verse 13, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. 
And Peter replies slightly oddly, verse 14. Surely not, Lord. I've never eaten anything unpure or unclean. Now we've got to understand what's going on here. In the Old Testament, Israel, who are the Jews, who are God's chosen people, had various ways that they were to show that they were different from the other people. Various ways that they were to show that they were set apart. What's another word for set apart? Holy. Because that's all that holy means. Set apart. Different. And one of the ways that Israel was to show that they were different, holy, set apart from the other nations, were they weren't to eat certain types of food. They had dietary restrictions. Things, uh, thing, food that was seen as unclean. Food like, you can read this in Leviticus 11, this is what some of the list was, camels. I've never thought of eating a camel, but that was on the prohibited list. Uh, hooves would split, animals with hooves would split hooves. Um, they couldn't have shellfish, they couldn't have pigs. Uh, also, eagles, vultures, screech owls, these are all on the list that they weren't allowed to eat. This was to show their separateness, their holiness. And so in this dream, Peter is seeing this kind of sheet of plenty, this sheet of feast, but all full of all kinds of food, but presumably because of Peter's response, the sheet has got both clean and unclean. It's got a mixture of what he could eat and what he couldn't eat. And so Peter sees it and he says, no way, Lord, I've never and will never eat anything unclean or impure. But the voice from heaven says to Peter, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. So something's gone on here. Something's happened. Verse 16, we're told this dream is repeated twice more. don't know if Peter's a slow learner and it kind of needs to happen three times, but it's three times that it happens. Then the sheep returns back to heaven and in verse 17 we're told Peter is wondering what it's about. Uh, verse 19 actually says he's still thinking about it. So two times we're told that he's, he's wondering about it, he's processing it. What does this mean, Lord? Meanwhile, we're told the men from Cornelius have arrived in Joppa, the ones that are looking for Peter, uh, and they found the right place. But then we go straight back to Peter, and unusually the Holy Spirit speaks here. The Holy Spirit speaks to Peter, verse 19, and says that three men have arrived who are looking for him, and the Spirit tells Peter to go outside and to go with these men because they've been sent by God. So that's what Peter does. He goes down the stairs, he tells them that he's Peter that they're looking for, and he asks why they've come, and the men tell them about Cornelius and tell them about the, the vision of the angel and what has been said. It must be too late in the day to go now to Caesarea, and so Peter invites the men in to stay at his house as guests. This is progress, because Jews didn't normally invite Gentiles in to stay at their house. So this is a good thing that Peter has done. Now the next day, Peter and the men travel to Caesarea, but another change of scene, kind of scene, we're told that Cornelius, meanwhile, is gathering relatives and friends to come and meet Peter. He obviously thinks this is going to be hugely important and he wants those that he knows and loves to be there for it. Well, Cornelius and Peter finally meet, and in verse 25, it's a lovely moment really, because Cornelius falls at Peter's feet in reverence. Now this is a man of honour and respect and power in certain circles, but spiritually he realises that he needs something or someone else. But Peter responds the right way and he says, look, uh, verse 25, get up, get up, Cornelius, I'm just a man myself. Peter then goes into Cornelius' house, that's where the rest of the wider group are, 
And then we find out that all Peter's wonderings and thinking about the dream has paid off because Peter's understood it. He's got it. Because the dream was about food being clean, but look at what Peter says to Cornelius. Verse 28, Peter says, You're well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him, but God has shown me that I should not call any... Now, the dream had shown him food is impure or unclean, but Peter has worked it out, and now I shall not call any man impure or unclean. Jews saw Gentiles as being unclean because they weren't set apart. They didn't know the Lord. But Peter remembers the words in the dream, do not call anything impure or unclean that God has made clean. And he now knows God can make anyone clean. Peter asks then, Cornelius, why have you sent for me? And Cornelius tells him about the angel and what the angel said and basically says, the angel said, Peter, we should listen to you. The Lord is going to speak through you for us. And that's why not only do I want to hear what you've got to say, but everyone's here. And so Peter begins to preach in verse 34. And he says, I now realise, the first thing he says is very important, I now realise that God doesn't show favouritism. God accepts people from every nation. As long as two things happen, they fear him and they do what is right. Now we'll think about what doing right means in a moment, but what God accepts everyone from every nation as long as they fear him and do what is right. And he then goes on to preach more and more. And what does he preach? He preaches Jesus. He talks about the things that God has done through Jesus. Verse 38, God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with power. He talks about Jesus dying on the cross. He speaks about in verse 40, God raising Jesus from the dead. Then he finishes with what I think are the two crucial uh, verses of the, um, of the sermon, verses 42 and 43. Peter says, Jesus commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he's the one that God has appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Here we've just suddenly found what the doing right is. When Peter says God, God shows no favoritism and there's only two things, you need to fear God and do what's right, here's the what needs to be done right. You need to believe in Jesus. This is what it is. So the key from Peter's sermon is that Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead and he's the one we need to believe in for the forgiveness of sins. The good news that Peter preaches, the good news that he needs to get across to these people is Jesus. Jesus' life, his power, his death on the cross, his resurrection, but most importantly, his position as judge of the living and the dead and the one that needs to be believed in for the forgiveness of sins. Now when you see the gospel said here by Peter, we need to stop for a moment and pull out of the story and I just need to speak about the gospel because it's put so well here. Let me pause for a moment and ask you, every single person who's sitting here, do you know Jesus as that? Do you know that he's the Lord, he's the judge of the living and the dead? Do you know that he is the judge? He's the one day. He, he's the one that one day we will all stand before. And he's also the one we need to believe in because he's the one that we can have forgiveness of sin through. Good to know, isn't it, that the judge is the one that can give us the one thing we need. Jesus is the judge. And I think of him as the one, he's like a judge with x-ray vision because he doesn't just see some of the stuff we do, he knows everything that we've done. But he doesn't just know the outward things that we've done, he knows our thoughts and our hearts and our desires and our motivations. 
He's the judge of the living and the dead. And he's a judge that will never have the wool pulled over his eyes. You can't trick him or bluff him. He is the judge. But he's also the one that we can believe in and receive the forgiveness of sins. Whenever the Bible speaks about forgiveness of sins, I always know that there will be some people sitting amongst us this morning who don't know the joy of forgiveness of sins, who don't know the wonderful truth of it or the freedom that it brings. If you're here today and you feel low because you know you're guilty, that's a good step because we are guilty when we stand before the judge of the living and the dead. But if you're all too well aware of your past mistakes or your current lifestyle or direction, or you feel like no one really knows the inward you, which is worse than the actual outward one, uh, I want to tell you Jesus knows, but in Jesus you can be forgiven. You can be forgiven, totally forgiven. And that brings a freedom that you cannot find anywhere else. So many people today try and escape from the weight of their own brokenness, their own sin, in so many other ways and none of it works. People try and escape it by alcohol because it dulls their memory and they don't feel the pain of it, but it only works temporarily. People try and uh, get rid of it by drugs or by sex or by throwing themselves into work or by relationships or gaming or food or pleasure. None of those things will remove that burden from you permanently. It may for a time, it won't properly. Forgiveness does. Know that you have someone who died on the cross for you, who died in your place, and then know that it's all been sorted out for you. That's why in the scriptures it talks about Jesus bringing rest. It's why James spoke about it at the beginning of the service and we sang about it. Because the burden is lifted. Because it's been taken off us and put onto Jesus. And it's been dealt with. And if you've ever worried that maybe he hasn't forgiven everything, he has. It's all been done and dusted. It will never be brought up against you again. It will never be remembered later as a kind of add-on. It's all been dealt with. It's a bit like double jeopardy, if you've ever heard of that law, where you can't be prosecuted for the same thing twice. It's the same in the, with the Lord. It's been prosecuted on Jesus. Forgiveness is the most sweet and soothing of all things. Because you know that you're loved by the judge who knows your whole heart and everything about you. You're accepted and you're forgiven. You don't have to hide anything. That's what Peter preached that day. He preached Jesus, judge of the living and the dead. And if you believe in him, your sins are forgiven. Well, that's what Cornelius and all the others from his household and his friends heard that day. And they believed. That's the wonderful thing. And we see that because in verse 44, we're told the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message and the circumcised ones that are there, i.e. the Jews, are astonished because the Holy Spirit is poured out on Gentiles, on unclean Gentiles. Now, you might think, well, how did they know the Holy Spirit had been poured out? We don't normally see the Holy Spirit at work in, diff in different ways. And how did they know? Well, because, verse 46, they heard the Gentiles speaking in tongues. Now, I take it the tongues there is speaking different earthly languages. Because what's going on here is another day of Pentecost. Remember in Acts chapter 2, what happened? Peter preached, people believed, the Holy Spirit came down, and they spoke in tongues, which was other languages. And that 
uh, visible evidence of the Holy Spirit allowed Peter to know it had happened. Then it happened again, where? With the Samaritans, Judea, Samaria. Peter was the one who saw them believe, saw the Holy Spirit come down. That's what's happening here. Uh, It's another day of Pentecost. Peter's preached. People have heard about Jesus, believed. The Spirit's been poured out. They're speaking in tongues. And so Peter can know absolutely Jesus is for Gentiles. The Holy Spirit is coming on these people. It's proven. Here's the confirmation that Jesus is for the world. And so Peter does the one thing you might have expected. He says, look, we're going to baptise these people. So massive baptism. And as I said, world history changes forever after this. Because now the apostles, and Paul in particular, but the apostles will go out and take the name of Jesus to everyone. That's what the rest of the book of Acts will be. That's what the disciples will go on to do. That's why mission agencies have been set up ever since then. That's why there's believers in New Zealand. This will lead to world evangelism. This will lead to Jesus being so well known that Christmas and Easter are celebrated in, around the world. This is, this is the reason that crosses are worn by people as jewellery around the world and the name of Jesus is on the lips of people even as a swear word around the world. And so now do you see the people of God are no longer set apart or made holy or clean by eating or not eating certain things. They're made clean by Jesus. They're made clean because they have the Spirit of God upon them and within them. It's, it's slightly different now, which is why we can have a food dream including bacon. This is good news. Now then, I won't go into it, but then, that's the end of the the passage that Linda read. What happens in chapter 11, if you can just pull that up, Alex, for a moment, chapter 11. I'll read it a little bit because you'll get the gist. The apostles and the brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the uncircumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. So they're saying, whoa, Peter, what are you doing? So Peter begins and explains everything that happened. And what does he do? He tells the same story we've just heard. That's that's our reading. That's one of the most significant events in the history of the world. So what's the main thing that we see here? I've only got one point. That is, what you see here is the gospel is for everyone. Jesus is for everyone. That's what you see here. The brilliant thing about Cornelius is I call him a twofer. I don't know if that's a word, but I use it. Twofer, two for one. That's what Cornelius is. In other words, Cornelius shows brilliantly two ways that Jesus is needed. I hope you picked this up as we went through it. Two ways. Cornelius is a brilliant example of seeing who needs Jesus. In one, They're both different. In the most obvious way, how does Cornelius show who Jesus is for? He shows that you're never too low or unclean or broken for Jesus because he's a Gentile. He was seen as unclean. I want to say this really clearly this morning. No one is too far from God. No one is too unclean or too sinful or too fallen or too broken for Jesus. No one. God has no favourites. Cornelius shows that. Peter and the other apostles from this moment on, they knew that Jesus was for everyone and that's why they went out and spoke to everyone about it. There was no second class of people beneath Jesus. No people too low for the Lord. It's why here at St. Stephen's, everyone is welcome through these doors. Because we all need Jesus. 
We all need Jesus. No one is too low. But Cornelius, remember he's a twofer, Cornelius works in another way too. Because as well as being a Gentile, what else was he? He was an upstanding, sincere, generous, religious man. But he needed Jesus. It wasn't enough that he was an upstanding, sincere, devoted, generous, religious man. He needed Jesus. Do you remember what Peter said? There are two things you need. You need to fear God. Cornelius did fear God. And you need to do what's right. And what's right? Believe in Jesus. Cornelius didn't have Jesus. He needed Jesus. And so Cornelius is an excellent uh, example because uh, good people need Jesus too. Upstanding, generous people, religious people need Jesus too. Do not fall for the lie that some people don't need Jesus because they're good or religious. All religions are not different paths up the same mountain to the same truth. All religions are not true. Jesus is the only way and the only truth. Good people need Jesus too. So Cornelius, you see, is an excellent example because he's a twofer. He shows that Jesus is for all. No one is good enough to not need Jesus, and no one is too bad or too low for Jesus. Now, at this point, I'm hoping that everyone agrees with me. I'm hoping that kind of going, yep, I think that's true, Jay. But I want to push you further this morning in saying, are you convinced of this? Does this truth impact your life? Does it change the way you pray and the way you live and your priorities in life? Are you convinced of this? Are you convinced that every person you know who, who isn't a Christian needs Jesus? They need Jesus. No one's too low for Jesus. No one's too good that they don't need Jesus. And to spend eternity without Jesus is a thing not even worth pondering. Hell is real. One day... He will be the judge of the living and the dead. If you know they need Jesus, what are you doing about it? Do you love them enough to pray for them? Do you love them enough to talk with them when the opportunity is right? To share with them? To invite with them? Do you love them enough to live your life in a way around them that endorses the gospel of Jesus rather than lets them off the hook? Who are you doing? Who... Who's in mind now as I'm saying this? Who have you got now that you know you're witnessing to because you know they need Jesus? I hope you've got a name or a few names because everyone needs him. Jesus is for all. And one of the warnings from a passage like this is there are sometimes people that we discriminate against because we either think they're too good, they don't really need Jesus, or they're too bad, they'll never turn to Jesus. That's wrong. Peter got that wrong here. It keeps mentioning that Peter is in the house of Simon the Tanner who lives by the sea. Sounds like a little nursery rhyme, doesn't it? And you kind of go, why do you keep telling us? That's an important point, I think, because he's in the house of Simon the Tanner. Remember last week I said the Tanner was someone who was unclean. And Peter thinks, well, he's okay, that level of uncleanness, but Cornelius, Gentiles are way too unclean. And what Peter sees here is do not discriminate all, and God can make all clean. Don't discriminate. Are there any people that you think, oh, they don't need Jesus because they're too good or they're not bad enough? All types of people are for Jesus. Jesus is for all. Every race. The respectable, upright woman and the morally bankrupt man all need Jesus. And positively, Jesus is for all. 
And one other thing, do you see from this passage how important our role is as human beings? Uh, let me try and explain this, because um, you may not have thought of this as we went through this passage, but this was a very convoluted passage, wasn't it? Lots of moving parts, lots of people, lots of places, lots of things happening at the same time, and I don't know whether you picked that up as Linda. You've got angels speaking, you've got the Holy Spirit speaking, you've got Peter on a roof and people down at the bottom of the house, you've got things happening in Joppa and things happening in Caesarea. I could go on and on. Do you know how you could make the whole reading a lot simpler? Do you know how you could have made Linda's reading a third of the, the length? Do you know how we could have streamlined the whole episode? Just have the angel in verse 3 tell Cornelius about Jesus. Done. We don't need the rest of the chapter. Just have the angel in verse 3 tell Cornelius, this is the gospel of Jesus, believe in him. Or drop off a Bible. Angel, just drop off a Bible. We don't need the rest of it. But God uses human beings to bring them to Jesus Christ. He uses us as his agent. Now, I'm sure there's a part here that's specific for Peter because, as I said last week, Peter's there, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. He's the one that see, he's the one that holds the keys to the kingdom of heaven. So there's something specific about Peter. But it's not just Peter. As you read the rest of the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament and the rest of human history, God uses human beings to draw people to Jesus, to share the good news of Jesus. He does it through the rest of the book of Acts. He's done it through the rest of history. He chooses to use frail weak human beings like you and I. So again, I ask you, who are you sharing Jesus with? Because he is for all. We all need him. There are few things worse than insensitive Christians who annoy non-Christians around them by Bible bashing, by being judgmental, by being holier than thou, and all those sorts of things. But perhaps there is one person the Christian who never shares the gospel, who's never praying for others who don't know Jesus, the Christian who never invites someone to come along to a guest service or Christianity Explored, who never bites the bullet and actually... And the, the excuse would be, look, if someone comes up and says, Jay, could you, could you tell me about Jesus? Well, then I would. I really would. But if that never comes, we never take, make the effort. There's a song by a guy called Gary Barlow, who um, is the lead singer of Take That, a British band. And um, uh, Gary Barlow has done a couple of solo albums. In one of the songs, he's got a song called God. I don't think Gary, Christian's a, uh, Gary Barlow's a Christian, as far as I know. But in the, in the song God, he sings this. If you found God and he gave you hope, would you tell the world or save your soul? If you found God, would you take him home? Would you open the curtains or keep them closed? If you found God, if you found God, would it be your secret? I don't know whether he's become a Christian, he's wrestling with whether to go public or not, or, but it's very interesting, isn't it? It's a challenge. Cornelius shows us everyone needs Jesus. The good news is Jesus is for everyone. But it also shows that God uses human beings as his agent. What are we doing about that? If I asked you this morning, who was the person most responsible, we know it's God, but who was the person most responsible for bringing you to the Lord Jesus today? I'm sure nearly everyone here would have a name, if not a couple of names, because that's how he works. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if we prayed right now that in a few years' time, if I asked the same question in this hall with the people there, a number of people would say our names. Wouldn't that be good?
Wouldn't that be something to rejoice in? Do your actions help you share Jesus? Do your words, does your prayer life, are we looking for people to know Jesus? This was one of the most significant events in world history. The world changed as a result of this. Jesus is for everyone. Jesus is for all. As the old hymn goes, O perfect redemption, the purchase of blood, to every believer the promise of God, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. Jesus is for all. What will we do about it? Let me pray. <coughs> Heavenly Father, I imagine that as we sit here this morning, most of us are not Jews. Some of us may be, but most of us probably aren't. This is great news for us. We thank you that Jesus is the Saviour of the world, that Jesus is Lord and King over all, and that by his work and by your Spirit, you can bring us the same forgiveness that Cornelius and his household received that day. Father, I pray for any here this morning who don't yet know, that have not fully committed to you. Please work within them by your Spirit. Let them see how loved they are by you. Let them throw themselves upon your mercy and let Jesus stand in their place. But for the rest of us, let us know not just in our heads that Jesus is for all, but let that be evidenced in the way that we live, in the way we use our time, the prayers we offer, the money we use, because we want the world to know the good news that we do, the good news of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.